1: Hey, everybody, this is Rudy Sarza. You're listening to Pantheon Podcast.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Today, we've got the legendary Danny Korchmar on My Rock Moment, though he is known to many just as Cooch. And Danny holds many titles. He's a guitarist, he's a songwriter, he's a producer, and he's also been part of some of the most iconic albums in rock history. To name a few, Carol King's Tapestry, James Taylor's Sweet Baby James, Jackson Brown's Running On Empty, and a number of Don Henley albums in the 80s, and he even wrote Henley hits like Dirty Laundry, Sunset Grill, and All She Wants To Do Is Dance. There's a lot of iconic work to discuss, so let's get started. Danny, Coach Korchmar, thank you for being on today. My pleasure. So saying, I guess, that you're a musician, you're a songwriter, you're a recording artist, you're a producer, doesn't really begin to describe all that you've done. (laughs) You've had a very illustrious career and a very busy one. It continues to be a busy one and one that a lot of musicians, especially nowadays, only dream of.
1: Mm. Well, yeah, it's a di- different world than it was when I was coming up, that's for sure, and much harder for young musicians, no doubt about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you're currently with the immediate family, so your old pals, Waddy Wachtel, Leland Sklar, Russ Kunkel, and then Steve Postel.
1: Right, that's right. These, these guys, I've known these guys and played with these guys for 50 years, and they're my best friends, and my brothers, so it's a real pleasure to be in a band with them. I'm
0: sure, and you've also done a lot of uh, other notable work with little-known artists, right? Little-known: Jackson Brown, Carol King, Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Don Henley. I could go on and on and on.
1: <laughs> well, I was very lucky to work with all these geniuses. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, I want—I you know—I want to get into all of that today, and I also want to get into the new Immediate Family EP that dropped May 13th, um, as well as what you've got coming up on the horizon. But if it's okay with you, I want to start at the beginning. Certainly. All right. So I find it ironic that you were a born and bred New Yorker, and also one of the main folks that really defined the California sound coming out of the seventies.
1: I guess so. Yeah, I was there. And then, you know,
0: yeah, you were there, and you were making some pretty incredible music. So I want to talk about. A little, you know, a little bit about your journey with music um, before you even came to L.A. Because you were in New York in those very formative years. There was a lot happening in that city at the time from a music perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I went to, um, to high school out in, out in the suburbs and me and my pals would go into the city every weekend and we'd go see everybody you could possibly. Meet. This is the 60s. So all hell is yeah. breaking loose in New York culturally uh, on, on every level. Uh, in theater and, and in uh, literature and, and uh, certainly in, in music. So we'd go there and, and um, I would go, and this is like mid-60s or, or so, you know. Uh, me and my pals would go to the Apollo Theater and we would see James Brown and Otis Redding and Little Richard and this my movie, gosh. everyone you could ever imagine. Just walk in. It cost three bucks to sit in, in the balcony. And <laughs> all these geniuses, one after the other after the other. So, and we would go, you know, every couple of weekends, you know, we would go and see whoever the, the headline act was. It would change every Friday, so we would go on Friday. And then we'd also go downtown to the village where everything was going on, all kinds of modern jazz and folk music. And again, it, was, it wasn't like that. You just walk in, just walk into a club like it was nothing and just have a seat and order a drink and, and watch some of the greatest musicians alive. So it was a pretty incredible time.
0: Right, and this is when you started playing as well. That's right, yeah. Okay, so were you in a band at the time? I mean, what made you think, you know what? I want to
1: do this well the thing you know i grew up listening to lots and lots of blues and soul music rhythm and blues that that was the stuff that really spoke to me and i loved it i really loved it a lot um when the beatles came along i realized that they were uh they were also basically a cover band doing a lot of rhythm and blues and soul music songs They covering a lot of that stuff but they were doing it with a three-piece band guitar two guitars bass and drums most r&b had you know horns and Organs and background singers and everything else. This was just a, a, a small combo playing this kind of, you know, R&B and soul music. And I went, oh, there's the formula. That's how you do it. Because I was a guitar player. I figured that's how you get involved with this music and become and, and, and find a way for, for you to get, for me to get involved in it and to play. It.
0: Mm-hmm. And did you say to yourself, this is it. This is
1: what I want to do. Absolutely.
0: Hmm. Early yeah. on.
1: Yeah. Oh, there's no, there was no turning back.
0: Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. It gets in your veins and then that's it.
1: Yeah. I wanted to be a musician before the Beatles hit. And after they hit, like I said, they showed me the template of how to do the music I loved in a a, a guitar combo. It was all over.
0: Yeah. A lot of people feel that way. I mean, it was kind of the catalyst. They opened the the doors, you know. Um, It made it more, I don't want to say easier, but more widely accepted to start playing that kind of a sound, you know, for rock to come about. And it was during those years that you formed a friendship with James Taylor as well, if I remember. Yeah, correctly, well, James, right?
1: James and I, James and I were, uh, were were childhood buddies and we met when we were like 13 or something like that.
0: Where did you meet? Uh,
1: Martha's Vineyard. We used to, our families both used to go to Martha's Vineyard every summer. Uh, Martha's Vineyard was very different then than it is now. It was kind of bucolic and quiet and uh, it's, now it's like the Hamptons, but back then it's, it was you know, a very quiet kind of situation, and us kids would just hang out, we'd hitchhike everywhere, and we'd all meet up with each other. So I met James on the porch of uh, the Menemsha store, which is this little grocery store, uh. lollygagging around, nothing to do. you know. <laughs>
0: just, just cruising for girls. <laughs> that's,
1: exactly right. that's exactly right. And, me and uh, him and me and our buddies, that's what we used to do. Uh, you know Hitchhike from place to place, and like you said, look for girls.
0: And were you playing music together? Were you kind of vibing off to, each
1: other yeah. creatively? I didn't realize he could play uh, until, uh, uh, well, a few months into, I guess it was maybe the first summer, the second summer, I can't remember. We were hitchhiking someplace and he started to sing. And I whipped around and looked at him because I knew what good singing was, uh, having listened to all this soul music, like I said. I said, wow, you can sing, oh my God. I didn't know anyone that could sing. And uh, right away that became the focus of our friendship was music and we listened to tons of records and we started playing music together.
0: That was it. And then he went off to London. And did you go off to London as well to be a no, session? I oh, no,
1: did. I went to Los Angeles. Uh, he went to London by himself and I went to Los Angeles.
0: And why did you go to Los Angeles? If so much was happening in New York, I mean, okay, let's just set aside the weather. <laughs> but there was a lot happening in New York. Why did you decide to?
1: Well, there was uh, perhaps a lot happening. But for instance, in the uh, session scene, it was a closed situation. You couldn't get in. All the seats were taken, the people that were doing all, oh. the, all the gigs. It wasn't like a, a, an open situation, you know. New Yorkers hold their cards very close to the vest. There's a tremendous amount of competition for musicians in New York. Sure. And, uh, you know, uh, LA was a more open scene and more rock and roll. That's the other thing. Most of the gigs in, in New York were uh, um, playing in pit bands uh, or doing jingles, mm-hmm. or playing in cover bands, and stuff like that. And right. LA was more, uh, oh, let's, you know, uh, way more of an open scene which I found out as soon as I got there and it fit what I wanted to do much better than New York. I still love New York and I'll always be a New Yorker, but it was a good, it was a good move on my part.
0: It was a good time to go. And this was what, like 67, 68. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a bit of a free for all in in LA at that time. And did you, you came out with a band, I think, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I joined up with a band called Clear Light. They needed a guitar player. So I kind of joined them for, they were on their way down there. Well, were thinking of leaving anyway, and that didn't last very long. But it got me to Los Angeles.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, when I was out there, I started to meet. I lived in Laurel Canyon, me and my wife at the time. So uh, we wow. started to meet everybody that, you know, everyone that was up there. Everyone knew everyone. Everyone was trading ideas. Everyone was listening to music. Everyone was bringing their new song. Uh, me and my wife were sharing a place with a guy named Barry Friedman, who worked for Electra mm-hmm. Records. Mm-hmm. And so people Barry knew everybody and people would come by, Crosby would come by, Johnny Mitchell came by, and that's where I met Jackson. All these people, they would come by, and there was always guitars and and uh, you know, people would just exchange ideas and, tra- and trade songs and like that. It's a very open sea.
0: Yeah, and it's incredible because when you're in it, in the middle of it, you're not really recognizing how incredible this is. You know, everybody, it's just your day-to-day. That's right. Mm-hmm. <sighs> It's such an incredible perspective to have looking back. And so you came out here with Clearlight. Clearlight went kaput. And at that point, were you thinking, okay, I'm out here. What the hell am I going to (laughs) do?
1: Or did you have other
0: opportunities?
1: I did think that to some degree. But very soon after I moved out, Carol moved out. Mm. She was married to Charlie Larkey, who was my pal at the time. And uh, soon after that, Peter Asher moved out. So now I got some buddies. We all knew each other. And we all started to kind of spread spread out, you know, and, and uh, meet more people. I introduced Peter to Carol uh, and, uh, you know, everyone knew, like I said, everyone knew everyone else. And right away we started. So Carol wanted to make it right. Lou Adler uh, convinced Carol to make an album, but she didn't want to be like, she, she wanted it to be under the rubric of a, of a band rather than her name as, as the front thing. So we had the idea for a band, The City, which consisted of myself, Carol and Charlie on bass. And we made an album. And that was the first full length album I ever played on. And boy, was I elated. I was through the moon. Sure. Was, for the first actual full album that I played on with Lou Adler. It was
0: for a full, full project, yeah. Yes. And you had met Carol before, though, hadn't you?
1: Yeah, I met Carol in um, in, in Greenwich Village. My band, when the band, James and I had a band following uh, uh, the first band I had. The second band was called Flying Machine. Yes. And uh, so James and I had this band, The Flying Machine, we were playing downtown at a club called The Night Owl, which was one of the clubs where a lot of bands would audition, and, and uh, they always had a, a revolving cycle of bands playing there. And we were one of them. We played there for months and months and months. And um, uh, like I said, Charlie, he was in a band called The Middle Class, and they are very good. And um, he brought his girlfriend at the time, Carol King, down to, uh, to see us. And that's where I met her. And, uh, you know, we became friends and she started calling me for her demo sessions to play on her demos, which is how I learned to play songs on records, basically. She's the, Carol is, was and is a musical genius, not just as a writer, but as a producer, an arranger on every level.
0: Wow. So it was a bit serendipitous that then you both find yourself in L.A. Right. And you have the opportunity to work together. So the city ends. And at this point, she's going solo. She's about to start writer. I would
1: think. Yeah, she that's right. Well, yeah, she did write her right after that, which I also played on.
2: Mm -hmm. And that was
1: her first uh, adventure as a uh, just under her own name, where she always should have been. And Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, yeah. And at that point, uh, I started another band with some of the remnants of Clear Light and uh, uh, Abigail Hannes was the lead singer. And uh, we, we, had, we started a band. We started playing clubs all up and down L.A. We played every place. We played biker bars, gay bars, teen nightclubs, alcoholic bars, uh, n- discos, everything you can imagine up and down, up and down the coast.
0: What was the name of that band?
1: Joe Mama. Joe-,
0: <laughs> Joe Mama. And how long did that last for? You were doing this while you were working with Carol and everything?
1: Well, this was after Carol. Carol didn't want to go on the road, see? Mm. Uh, So at that point, we had to do something, so we started this band. We didn't even take it that seriously. It was just fun. And we were playing all these clubs, and it was fun. We were were having a ball. Listen, I loved every minute of it. Sure. I didn't didn't think, oh, this is such a drag. We have to play these shitty clubs. I was going, this is
0: fabulous. I (laughs) love it. (laughs) Very different audience from night to night, but it was still fun.
1: Yeah, it was great. We got to play. It was fantastic, you know. So uh, we got a deal with Atlantic. We made a couple of records, and uh, that was the scene then. But at the same time that was happening, James made his first album that I played on. Well, his second album, actually. Sweet Baby James, which I played on. And uh, Carol made her Tapestry, which I also played on. And uh, at that point, all hell broke loose.
0: No kidding. I mean, back to back. How was it working on, and, and I want to ask about Tapestry, but how was it working with James on, on uh, Sweet Baby James?
1: Well, it was, it was great. You know, the songs were terrific. Peter, well, you know, I loved him and I knew what he was all about. I knew his DNA kind of. Mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of and Peter Asher was a genius level producer who knew to keep it spare, keep James in front, and everything else is in the back. Not, don't clutter it up. And uh, so we all followed that, uh, that pursuit. And uh, it was always great. But James is a genius. So it was
0: always great playing. Yeah, yeah. And that album was incredible. And I had read somewhere in the Fire and Rain song, when in that line, "Sweet dreams and flying machines," was a reference to the band you were in with him. Is that wrong? Is that a total myth?
1: No, that's exactly right.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> I is, is that true? I gotta ask. You can't, you can't believe everything you see on the internet.
1: It uh, is true. Absolutely. Yeah. That song, cool. Fire and Rain, is a song he wrote down exactly what happened. Everything everything in that song is something that was happening to him at the time. And that's the way he wrote then and perhaps now, too. So it's all literal, you know, pretty much. You can learn more about James by listening to his songs than you can interviewing him or having a conversation. Interesting. If you don't know him very well.
0: Right. Yeah, well, Fire and Rain, every time I hear it, I don't care how many times I've heard it over however many decades. It still makes me cry.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. Brilliant, brilliant
0: song. It is a brilliant song. And Tapestry. I mean, did you know, I mean, you know, Street Baby James became a huge album, but Tapestry, one of the seminal albums of the 70s, Did you, when you were on it, did you realize or even at one point say to yourself, this is going to be effing amazing. (laughs) This is going to be the album.
1: I didn't think like that. And none of us musicians did. Uh, She had already made two albums, The City, which is a terrific album, by the way. Uh, And the next one is called Writer Carol King also a terrific album with great songs on it. I knew she was great. There was no question in my mind that she was brilliant, but there was a big question in my mind as to whether the public would accept her or not, because you can't tell, you never can tell. Lou mm-hmm. Adler knew that this was going to be huge. And although nobody said anything like that when we were in the studio, we were there to work. Right. And, uh, yeah, and that's what we did. It never occurred to me, for instance, the term singer-songwriter, nobody ever used that term. That was invented by a uh, journalist and we ne- never thought of us oh this is an incredible movement we just want to go play all of mm-hmm. us and that included neil young and david crosby and me and all and uh, you know in other words the, the, the lesser musicians as it were and mm-hmm. and the big stars we all wanted to jam and play all the time so um it was a, a real community at that point and nobody was patting themselves on the back
0: right and do you feel like the singer-songwriter genre kind of came about because there was this con- increasing need to as a band, validate yourself by writing your own stuff?
1: Uh, yeah, perhaps that's that's the case. But I don't think, again, anyone thought that way. It just happened. Yeah. It just happened, you know. James was starting to write songs when he was 16. Paul Simon was writing songs when he was 16. Dylan, Bruce, all of them. And so it was uh, just a, a, an extension of what was going on, mm-hmm. you know. But it was, nobody sat down and decided how it was going to be. It just evolved.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, it's always in retrospect, right? That you look back and you're able to point the magical times, the genres, how everything evolved.
1: Right, you know, I would say that's that's for critics and, and journalists and, and not for musicians. Musicians are, are supposed to just
2: play and write and create music.
0: Yeah. Hey guys, we're gonna take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds.
0: Okay, guys, let's get back to the interview. And jumping gears a little bit, maybe jumping ahead a couple of years, I was surprised to see that you had worked on, um, because I didn't know this, Harry Nelson's Pussycats.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Um... I mean... That had to have been an experience. I know he collaborated very closely with John Lennon on all that too. Yeah. And there was just a lot going on personally for the both of them at that time.
1: Yeah.
0: How was that experience?
1: <laughs> well, sessions. We did pussycats. I think it was two or three weeks uh, with a huge assortment of, of, of musicians. Everyone was great. Okay. You know, I saw John every day. He was never anything but, but terrific. Lovely, lovely guy never pulled rank, never mm-hmm. t- abused anyone verbally or any, any other way. He was a lovely guy to be around. That is my experience. Harry Nilsson was a dear friend of mine. I loved him very much. And Harry, once he drank too much, would turn as drunks will. Uh, you know, they're all cheerful and wonderful and great. And then suddenly they turn and the nasty side comes out. That's what happens with serious alcoholics, which Harry at the time was. Uh, But again, I loved him. I love him now. He's a wonderful and genius guy. I mean, really one of the most brilliant talents and and brilliant minds I ever met. So uh, it was a joy to be around those fellas. It was great. Again, this is supposedly the weekend. This is supposedly the lost weekend where they went and they they tore up the troubadour. Well, I never saw anything like that. I never saw any bad behavior when we were in the studio. We were there all the time. Plus, there was a, a, a major crew of other maniacs at that session. Keith Moon was there. Ringo was there. You know, so, uh, you know, people that are supposedly known for, you know, extreme behavior. Everyone was beautiful.
0: Yeah. And they were all living together at
1: the time, Bradley, right? Yes, that's right. I went over to their bed. Yeah. And hung out over there. <laughs> oh,
0: God. Oh. Did you ever have a Hollywood vampire night with them at the Rainbow? <laughs>
1: uh, no. No. I didn't go to the Rainbow much.
0: <laughs> i know that that was uh, one of the regular hangouts that they were all at but yes,
1: yeah, just that was a hangout for everyone and that was that way in the 70s the 80s and the 90s It probably still is
0: it still is it still is i think people go you know more now for nostalgic reasons
1: well i don't think they'll let me in i don't have any tattoos
0: <laughs> they let me in i don't know i don't have one either <laughs> they're not discerning don't worry <laughs> But, yeah, that was a real interesting um, fact to find out because, you know, you read so much about that time and what Harry was going through and how his voice was really starting to go.
1: Yeah, at that uh, point. I, I can I, I have a pretty good idea how that happened is that uh, he was hanging out with John. Now, John could could sing rock and roll. John had been singing rock and roll for 10 years b- before that in clubs, five, six sets a night. So he, gets mad, uh, he could do that. <laughs> he had been doing it his whole life, you know. Harry had a very sweet beautiful tenor and uh, uh, it was the opposite of a, a rock and roll screaming voice. But he had so admired John and so loved John that he wanted to sing like that. So he started Rah! and you know smoking cigarettes all the time didn't help and, and uh, you know I think that's why he, uh, he heard his voice. I think, I think that's what he did to his voice. He left, he left that beautiful uh, uh, tenor that you hear on his early records because he wanted to be a rock and roller like John.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's what That's I think incredible. Well, it makes sense. It makes sense. You think it was just, you know, straight drinking or whatever. But, it, yeah, yeah I mean, it was it was he was doing everything he, he wanted could. to sing like
1: that. He wanted to sing like that. That real. Ah!
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, he got it. He right. got it. You yeah. know, I teach um, – I teach rock history too, and I was trying to teach some of the kids about Harry Nilsson, and I was trying to sing, you know, I can't live, <laughs> and they looked at me like literally a cat was dying, <laughs> no pun intended. And I thought, you know what? We'll leave that to Harry. But I had shown them, like you know, how his kind of his voice had changed
1: over yeah. the years. And well, that his his can't live is a great example of what an amazingly beautiful voice he had, stunningly beautiful, and we all loved him and admired him. I. I Loved him before I ever met him. I thought he God, was a genius. and Absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah, brilliant guy, I guess, intellectually, talent-wise. Yes, and
1: once I met him, I realized what a, a supreme intellect he had. He was very, very smart, very well-read, highly educated, self-educated, and highly educated.
0: Yeah, uh, another one gone too soon. Very definitely. And you worked with um, Crosby and Nash. In fact, I read that you, one of the first people you met was David Crosby when you That's came right. to L.A., Yeah, that guy is everywhere. I I think I've talked to a couple other people that said the first person, first celebrity I saw was David Crosby. I'm like, Jesus, (laughs) it's
1: all over the place. A lot of people don't realize about Crosby because he gets a lot of bad press is that he was a very, very loving and generous guy to me. And uh, amazingly, I spoke to Wadi, my pal Wadi, was in a band with me. He was one of the first people that he met. Crosby was one of the first people Wadi met when he came there. And he was lovely to Wadi. He was absolutely lovely to me, the sweetest guy in the world. And uh, so, you know, the stories you hear about the bad behavior are mixed, mixed reviews, I would say. My experience with him was not that at all, was that he was a a really terrific, generous guy.
0: I mean, look, it, it was a crazy time. People were doing a lot of drugs. People loved to write about the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can consider yourself to be a good person and you're probably going to excuse me, but probably going to fuck up quite a bit. And there's always going to be people there waiting to write about it. <laughs> or, right. You know, right. and I feel like he got a little bit of that, but he's an interesting guy for sure. Yeah. And it's 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 great that you got to work with both uh, him and Nash, because I feel yes. like Nash oh, is yeah. one of the nicest guys in the industry. So I hear.
1: Absolutely. It was a joy and a delight working with those fellows and they were wide open. They really encouraged all of us to, to go get it, to go for it on stage.
0: Yeah, they were pros at that point.
1: Yeah, and they really meant it. They were really sincere. I was a joy playing with them. I loved playing with them.
0: Yeah, David Crosby still sounds amazing.
1: His voice? Yeah, his voice is still intact, although he's he's at this point elderly. And I just read that he doesn't want to tour anymore. Mm,
0: Yeah, it's too bad. But he still sounded good. He had a great run. Yes, yes. And oh, speaking of run, um, I wanted to ask you about Jackson Brown's Running on Empty, mm-hmm. how that was to record that album, because I know you did it all from the road and it was all new material, right? right.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, he had this idea, Jackson, he wanted to go out on the road and and, prefer, and uh, debut new material on stage. And uh, to do this, he felt he had the, the best guys. We were considered me, Russ and Lee and, and Craig Durge. We, we were known as the section at that point. Yeah. And uh, we were considered like heavy duty cats, or at least Jackson thought we were. (laughs) You were. So he uh, came up with enough money to pay us. At that point, we were making pretty good money because we were in demand. (laughs) He came up with the money to pay us, and and we started to rehearse and um, play some of these songs for the first time. And I think it was Russ's idea who said to Jackson, hey, man, why don't you just, why don't, why don't, why doesn't this album just be all new material? And Jackson said, what a good idea. So all the songs are kind of about the road experience. And they certainly were all recorded on the road. They recorded in, in, in uh, backstage, they were recorded in hotel rooms, on the bus, uh, and just live off the stage. Some of the first gigs we did, that was the, the takes so that you hear on the album, all the way through, no edits, and bang.
0: Incredible. Did you play guitar and co-produce that
1: album? No, I just played guitar, but I, I wrote a song on there. Uh, called Shaky Town that Jackson recorded, because it was kind oh, of about, okay. the. Uh, <laughs> so I was lucky to have, you know, it's pretty great when Jackson, and I consider one of the great songwriters of our generation, without question, does one of your songs. It's pretty, pretty great. Yeah.
0: No kidding. No, you've read some, wrote some incredible ones, and I love Shaky Town, Yeah, but how was that recording in a hotel room or at the back of a, how the heck do you even do that?
1: (laughs) You have to be dumb, dumb, stupid, and ignorant, (laughs) uh, which we certainly were. Uh, We had, uh, with us, we had the great Greg LaDani, and and LaDani, nothing fazed him. There was one time when we cut, I think Shakytown was, we, uh, we were staying at a Holiday Inn. So Jackson rented a room, or a couple of rooms that connected with each other. We went in there and removed all the furniture out of one of the rooms into the other room. Ladani moved the tape machines into the other room, ran the snake from there into the room that we'd cleared out. We lifted the bed up and put it against the wall uh, and the and the mattress. That's where we set the drums that. <laughs> I think Jackson sang <laughs> it in the bathroom. And we hit it. And we, <sighs> oh.
0: Wow. And then how was the audience reaction? I mean, this was all new material.
1: That's, the, that's, I mean, that's just... an interesting thing. They reacted the same to Running on Empty the first time we played it as they did after it was out and we toured and it was already a hit in others they responded to it like they knew it and loved it already immediately it was really something and you know it really lit jackson up and made him feel like gee I, I can do this i get away with this you know yeah and, uh, and his new tunes they responded just as enthusiastically to his new material as they did to his hits and you know
0: incredible so. they were devout jackson fans
1: yes yeah they loved jackson not not one song or or you know whatever his number one hit was they loved him and so they're ready to go wherever he wanted to take them.
0: that is so cool that is so cool he seems like a lovely guy just to know let
1: alone work with yeah he's one of my best friends and he is a absolutely wonderful human being yeah a really great person.
0: i'm a big fan i was actually looking at um concert tickets in LA out here for September
1: right before
0: this I still haven't seen him I'd love to see him
1: he does a great show really great
0: And from there, I mean, because you hit everybody that was anybody at the time. You yeah. played with Linda. Mm,
1: yeah, yeah, you did
0: quite a bit with Linda.
1: Well, I we did two or three tours with her, and I played on a couple of albums, a couple of her yeah. albums. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, and how? I mean, her voice. It, to be able to work with somebody like that, they can probably just get it right on the first or second take. I can't imagine what a joy that was to work with yeah. someone like to back up a voice like that.
1: As they say in New York, forget about it. Uh, she has the most incredible voice I've ever been on stage with. Unbelievable, the power and the emotion she can put in, the, the dynamics she puts into her vocal. You had to pay attention to back her up because she would swoop down and, and, and go to a whisper and then she'd blast out the next one. So you really had to pay attention. So when I got on stage, I uh, Peter Escher called me and asked me was I interested in, in uh, touring and recording with Linda? I said, absolutely. Uh, he sent me then the de- the you know, the mix, the mix off the front of house, so I could learn her show. So I had it in my car and let's do it over and over again. Kind of learned what I was gonna do and went to the first rehearsal. And as soon as she hit, we did it's so easy to fall in love. It's so as soon as she hit that, it was like the loudest thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> like, they cut like, yes, you know, so I'm gonna turn my amp up, which one of the first times I was able to do that. And uh, I loved playing with her. Also, she's a very, very, very smart individual. Very smart, very talented. She knows her stuff. She's an extraordinary woman.
0: I've gathered that. And I thought to myself, as a musician backing her up, to have to kind of ride that wave with her and her voice... There's nothing steady, and I say I say this in the best way. There's nothing steady about it. She can go up and down, and you know, sideways. I mean, it, it's yeah. incredible to me. I've always loved her.
1: Well, She's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant artist. Also, the way she keeps changing uh, styles—not not styles, I should yeah. say—but genre. genres. Genres. Opera. You can sing rock and roll. You know, she can sing these those beautiful Mexican ballads, which are gorgeous. You know, she, she has tremendous, she's, she's curious and interested, not just in one way to perform, a user voice, but in lots of ways. And that takes intelligence. That's the difference between a great singer and a good singer. You can have a terrific voice and go on American Idol one of these stupid ass shows, but do you know what to sing? Do you, know, do you know how to present your voice? Do you know what key you're supposed to be in? Do you know what songs, what titles, what songs you sound good singing? That takes intelligence. And that's what makes a great singer.
0: Right. No, I mean to do something like that takes incredible an incredible amount of courage to step outside that genre to try to appeal to a whole new fan, fan base. Courage and confidence to know that you can do
1: it. Well, she kept um, her fan base; so they went with her. Yeah, on all her ex- excursions, as they will, they should because they trusted her.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly, and her voice—they bought into her as a talent. And- now, very interesting stuff, and I know you did. I know you did her music video. What's new? You played her love interest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that had to have been fun.
1: It was. I was very uncomfortable, actually. You know, I wasn't used to being in the camera. I didn't. I had no idea why she'd call me. She thought I'd look good with a fedora. I was actually you wearing my back at the time, and uh, so amazingly, she called me down there. I did the best I could. I was actually really nervous, <laughs> way out of my comfort zone you know i adored linda then and now but but uh, i was i was kind of nervous
0: about it yeah. i'm sure i'm sure you did a great job you did a great job and then you moved to don henley in the 80s and i mean your body of work there in some of the best songs dirty laundry i mm-hmm. oh you know i just remember dirty laundry was used over and over and over during the o j simpson trial too sure i i, I cuz i was i was a young girl and you know you're watching all this on tv and they would they would play that song and i'm like That is one incredible song. But my mom had had the album, too, growing up. So we were listening to all that stuff. And I'm like, Sunset Grill, Dirty Laundry. I mean, some of the songs that all she wants to do is dance. Mm -hmm. Such good music. That was all you. You You wrote those.
1: I did, yeah. With Don.
0: With Don. That had to have been an interesting experience because he's coming off the Eagles. He's now trying to reinvent himself as a solo artist.
1: Mm-hmm. The thing is that Glenn had made a solo album. Uh, the Beatles were not talking to each other. And Glenn had made a solo album. It was called No Fun Allowed. I played on that, in fact. <laughs> and Russell played on that. And um, so now Don wants, he figures he's got it, he has to make a solo album now. So he talks to a lot of different people. He had, had a lot of different people coming up to his place to discuss it. And I knew he was going to call me, and finally he did. I went up there, and after a couple of hours, he asked me to work with him on his album. To which I said, absolutely, of course. Game changer. It was great working with him. He's got two things. One, he's a very, very smart guy, very smart. And and he writes wonderful lyrics, but he also has a voice, an r and B, a a soul voice like You Can't Believe. Mm -hmm. One of my my favorite singers ever, ever in life. So uh, what an experience, you know. Uh, it, it was incredible it's great i loved it and i got kicked upstairs to producer at that point so
0: incredible because you were on three albums
1: yeah i, I worked with on three albums yeah
0: wow and i mean that must have been a bit of a game changer for you too from a, even a career standpoint i mean going in a different direction in the 80s
1: yeah it was you know i realized pretty quick in the 70s that i really didn't want to be a session musician you know i when i did when i was a teenager i did i wanted to be like Steve Cropper in, in, you know, in Memphis or, or uh, you know, guys that got up every morning, went to the studio and played soul music all day long. I love that idea. But on the other hand, going and doing re- Helen Ready dates and, and uh, you know, d- dates for mediocre singers. And I, I realized very quickly, this is what I want to do. I, you know, I want to make history. Yeah. And uh, uh, I want to play. Also, I was really spoiled at that point because I've been playing with Jackson and James. I knew what great songwriting was. So I, was, I had an attitude at that point. I was going, well, this, this song is shit. What am I doing here, you know? And, uh, you know, so I, I didn't have a good attitude and, and never meant to be a session guy along those lines. Now, my buddy Lee Sklar is one of the best musicians in the world. He can sit down and play play anything, can read any chart, can play anything. And that's what he loves. He doesn't want to produce. He doesn't want to write. He doesn't want to sing. He, he just wants to play he the band. to play. With yeah. me, I always wanted to. I always thought I'd probably be a good producer. And I ended up doing some production, as we know. And and songwriting I was always writing songs. And once I started to be able to collaborate with Jackson, for instance, and uh, you know, and with, especially with Don, now I'm collaborating with a guy that's like one of the top, top guys in the world. And yeah. uh, at that point, I forgot about doing dates. I said, you know, later for this, the same for me. I'm just going to work on uh, with Don and with people of his ilk, if possible.
0: Right, and to to have someone like you be honest and keep them in check and say, hey, by the way, this song is shit. Mm-hmm. It's probably you know something that they would want.
1: Right. Well, the thing was, well, you know, again, I don't. That wasn't my style word on telling people their song is shit. <laughs> uh, my my thing was to see, can I help? How can I help? Yeah, that was my my uh, uh, my feeling as a musician as well. Uh, we were taught that from Peter Asher. we were taught to think, as side members, we were taught to think like producers. What's going to help the record? What's going to help the singer? What's going to help the engineer, for that matter? You know, what's going to help? Play something that's going to help. You're not out there for mm-hmm. yourself. You're out there to make someone else look good. Mm-hmm. And that was drilled into us, and we were good at it. Me, Russ, and Lee, and Wadi, we were all real good at that. We know how to play songs. Right. And that's not the case with every, uh, especially young musicians coming up now.
0: Sure, sure, it's a little different. And you did um, w- one story I, I want to touch on because I thought this was hilarious. Now, in 1990, you co-produced and you played on uh, Bon Jovi's number one album, Blaze of Glory. Mm-hmm. And I know he had told you, Jeff loved that song. Oh, God. The, the whole album was so awesome. And I remember the movie. Um, and he had told you that he wanted Jeff Beck to play.
1: Right.
0: And you had told Jeff Beck that you were in Spinal Tap as well because Jeff kind of came in because he's Jeff Beck you right. know i mean he's a pro he's an icon um but he warmed up a little bit when you told him that you had been in uh, spinal tap <laughs> well it
1: was funny because you know once uh, the word spread around la we were at a and studios which was a big hang anyway uh and once uh, the word spread to the jeff was going to come in and overdub on this stuff uh every guitar player in la was starting to hang out and you know people that knew john or knew somebody that knew john everyone was coming by and, and uh And, of course, Jeff is a guy, he doesn't care at all about that, does not care. And it's not that he's rude, but he also isn't interested. Yeah, yeah, I'm great, I'm great, whatever. He's more interested in in hot rods, for instance, you know, than he is in uh, talking to other guitar players. Couldn't care less. (laughs) But when I finally mentioned to him that I was in Spinal Tap, he lit up. He immediately lit up and I said, You were really <laughs> the only time he was impressed the whole time he was there. He's a the guy that is not easily impressed or not at all impressed, you know. But that impressed him. So, I, obviously, after that, I had to call, uh, you know, I had to call Nigel Tufnell uh, <laughs> to come down, my pal. Christopher Guest. <laughs> I had to call Chris and say, Well, you better get down here and say hello to Jeff. So, he did. He came down, and that was the only time that Jeff was actually really friendly to anyone. <laughs>
0: Did he come down in costume? Was he wearing Spanx? No, no, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought that was the best. That was that such really a was. great. Christopher Guest is one of my favorite comedians too, and I thought, oh yeah. god, of course he'd be impressed by They're, that.
1: Chris is very brilliant. Very, I haven't seen him in, year, in years, but he is a brilliant, brilliant man.
0: Oh, great movies! Well, I want to jump to today because the EP released May 13th, and six songs, right? Four new ones. Mm-hmm. Then Dirty Laundry and Somebody's Baby by Jackson Brown.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Can we talk a little bit about this original music that you created? Sure. His songs?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's was, it was mainly up to me and Waddy to come up with new material. Uh, Steve Postel, our guy, uh, he, he is kind of our all-around guy. And he has a beautiful high tenor, which Waddy and I don't have. Waddy and I are more rock and rollers, rock and roll singers. But he has a legit high voice. So uh, we get to pass the stuff around. For instance, Steve sings Somebody's Baby and he sings it beautifully. Uh, and um, Wadi sings, you know, um, what do we do? Uh, let me see. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember all the songs we did. Slip it in Slide. He and I wrote that with, with Tito La Riva and he sings the crap out of it. And uh, so there's, it's, it's varying. It goes back and forth, you know. Wadi and I do a lot of the writing and uh, and Steve also. Is, comes in there. We also write stuff for Steve, for his voice, you
0: know. Yeah. The songs are awesome. I mean, I listened to all of them, Divorced, uh, Slip Sliding, Fair Warning, House Will Fall. Being a native Angelino, when I heard Divorced, Mm. I was cracking up. And also being a woman that maybe may or may not have dated men that were living in the valley that were divorced, (laughs) The, the for those that will be listening, it's when you say living in the valley, driving down the 405, divorce, that is gold to me. <laughs> gold to me. Because I think the 405 is where most Angelinos sort out their life problems.
1: <laughs> you just
0: there. Yeah. That, that's what
1: I came up with the idea for the song, obviously. I go, oh, dying on the four oh five. God. And I got home hmm, that's kind of fun. <laughs> I wrote, sure. verse, I wrote uh, two verses in a chorus, and then I called Waddy because I had no music. This is one of the first times I wrote the lyrics before the music. I almost always start with the music. Oh. I do always start with the music. So I called Wad and said, well, I have these lyrics, and they're really fun, but uh, I'm not sure what to do with it. So he came over. He picked up a guitar, and I picked up a guitar. And I'm telling you, in 10 seconds, we came up with what you hear. <laughs> we immediately <laughs> went into the, the parts that you hear on the record. And then we wrote a bridge for it and everything like that. But it was obviously what it was about. And I thought I was having fun with it. It's kind of tongue in cheek. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: I think everyone would know it, what it is. And I think every city has a 405. And, uh, you know, so I think it's got a little universal quality to it.
0: Oh. I'm sure and you get a lot of laughs. When laugh I
1: play it live, I always, people always go, yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you, you just had to have visited LA to even know what that reference is. <laughs> you know, The main artery through the city. Oh, God, I, I loved it. And it was, like you said, tongue-in-cheek, a little bit like Dirty Laundry was.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. You know? So this, essentially, these songs coming out, it was the bridge release, right? To your second um, full-length album that's going to be coming right. out. Yeah. What is that coming out?
1: That's a good question because we also have a documentary that's just been completed about the five of us. And uh, at one point we were talking about trying to coordinate the two, but that might not be possible. We're gonna start touring again in the fall. So uh, it'll probably come out later in the summer or early fall. uh, We've got a lot of leeway, we're almost through with it, but uh, it's gonna take what's great. By the way, I hate to say that it's great.
0: (laughs) Well, these songs are great.
1: Really, really good. The songwriting is phenomenal. And it's just, we're really, really proud of it.
0: And is it mostly all originals?
1: All originals. These two. All originals. Love original. that.
0: Love that. And then you'll probably be, yeah, hitting the road and touring with that second album. Sure will. I'll be looking for dates on that one.
1: Yes. Anyway,
0: talk to me about the the documentary. All
1: right. Cool. Well, the documentary is, is being directed by Denny Tedesco of Hi. record group fame. So yes. at first, first he saw it as a kind of follow-up to the Wrecking Crew because uh, to a large degree, Russ and Lee especially, but myself and Marty also, we became like in-demand session guys kind of after the Wrecking Crew. We kind of, we, we kind of crossed over from the Wrecking Crew to guys like us. Right. Not just us, but guys like us. And uh, um, it was a, a different mindset and music was very different at that time. Uh, another thing is that the Wrecking Crew didn't have their names on the albums. Uh, Peter Escher and and Lou Adler put our names on those albums, Sweet Baby James and Tapestry. Obviously, that was a huge kick in the ass for us in terms of getting called for record dates. Sure. So uh, that changed, you know, changed everything for us, you know.
0: To get credit. Yeah. So would that documentary is coming out when then? Uh,
1: I'm not sure. Probably probably in the fall as well. And it follows us from back, you know, from the early uh, 70s, late 60s, early 70s till now.
0: Oh, well, you kind of have to tell the whole story, right?
1: Right, because here we are in a band now. After all this time, we're in a band together, you know?
0: Yeah, you're making original music. You're still out there. And, and it speaks to um, the collaboration and the friendships. Yes, that's right. That have endured all those decades. No, it's really exciting. I can't wait to see it. I've seen the Wrecking Crew um, documentary, which is a great one. Really interesting. And it's, it's a little heartbreaking, too, to know how many albums these guys played on. And, and look, there were a number of them, a hundred plus um, that played on these incredible albums that really didn't get the notoriety. They were these anonymous players that made your record sound good at the right.
1: time. That's true. But the fellas didn't really think that way. Uh, mm. those guys, you know, they, you'd look at their book, their calendar, they'd, they'd do a 10 to one, a two to five, a six to nine. And that's what's written down there. And whatever's on there, that's what they do. Nancy Sinatra, sure. Uh, a Taco Bell commercial, sure. The movie score sure. it was the idea of just working all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, with us, you know, we're like I said, we're, we're, we're rock and rollers, for instance. Most of the, the uh, wrecking crew are jazz musicians. Uh, all of us are rock and rollers, and we're coming from that place rather than jazz. And um, we also would tour with the artists we play. We play on a James Taylor record, we go out and tour with him. So it's very different than the wrecking crew, right? It's like a very different uh, uh, culture, I should say. Than right. the wrecking Crew.
0: No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, I'm excited for the documentary. That should be a very interesting story to tell. Yeah. So I want to ask you, of everything you've done, you know, um, were there any collaborations that you're sorry you didn't get to make? Anybody you wanted to work with that you didn't get to work with?
1: Well, of course, you know, uh, that goes without saying. You You know, I'm fans of so many people, like the people I grew up with. I got to play with Buddy Guy, which is very nice. You know, I didn't get to play with Muddy Waters, for instance, or Ray Charles, or any of the people I grew up with. But uh, I got to play with some of them. And uh, when I think about it now, who would I like to play with? I don't know. I don't know. I really, I can tell you who I like. You know, I mm-hmm. like Jack White. I think he's just great. Yeah. Uh, I like the Black Keys, the earlier stuff. The better. I like Greta uh, Van Fleet. I think they're really too. Because they Me play too. rock and roll. They yes. Play. Um, yes. There's some other uh, rival sons are really good. Blackberry Smoke are fantastic. Muse from London, absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of great bands, you know. That not, well, no, I can't say that. there aren't a lot of great bands. Not like there were, because it's too goddamn hard to make a great band now. Uh, um, economic, economically, it's too hard. Yeah. And when you go on the road, you got to you know bring five guys with you, and then guys to set up the gear and knock it down. It's very difficult to keep a band together at this point. Yeah,
0: I um, can imagine.
1: But then it was a lot easier and a lot more fun uh, back in the day. But there are still great bands doing great stuff.
0: Sure, sure. You have to really want it these days, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, you always needed to, but, you know, there are certain barriers now that maybe weren't around That's right. 50 years ago. Yes. So of all the work you've done, and I know, I know this is a tough one, and I'm sure you've been asked this before, but of all the work you've done, what might you be most, pr- most proud yeah. of?
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm proud of all of that. I got to work with Neil Young on one of his albums. Uh, you got to work with Dylan on one of his albums. I'm tremendously proud of all of that. It was, And not only that, it was a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. What do you think? You know, people that tell you, well, I just do the full work. Hey, I do this to have fun. I, if yeah. it's not fun, count me out. You know, that's the way I feel about it, especially now. And uh, I've had a tremendous amount of fun playing with these geniuses. Look at all sure. the people I have to play with. And every time I learned something and every time I would look forward to what are they going to bring out next? What, what song are they going to whip out on me next, you know? So all of it was fun, a tremendous amount of fun. I was very lucky, but also I was, I was good. You know, I knew how to play songs. So yeah. That, uh, uh, the whole thing worked out extremely well. And I'm so proud of, of my association with all these incredible people I got to play with. And I'm very proud of, of having the friends I have. James Taylor and Jackson Brown are two very, very close friends of mine who I've known. Basically, their whole lives and my you know, whole life.
0: You grew together. Yeah, your careers grew together.
1: And then, and then my band, Russ, Lee, and Wadi, and, and Steve. These guys are my best friends. And I've known Russ and Lee and Wadi from a million years. And we love each other very much. So, you know, what can, what can I say? I'm proud of all of it. I'm thrilled to have been involved in all of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing. Not a lot of people can say that. So. Danny, thank you for the time. I really appreciate
1: it. Thank you very much.
0: All right. A big thank you to Danny Korchmar for being on My Rock Moment. It must be surreal to be part of so many timeless albums. Now, in the show notes, I provided a link to The Immediate Family's latest music. Guys, you have to listen to Divorced, especially if you live in the LA area. It will really resonate. (laughs) I've also provided a link to their website as well, so you can read up on these guys' incredible bios and find show dates. And as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate me, five stars, please. And follow LA Woman Rocks on Instagram for rare classic rock photography and info on upcoming podcast episodes. So thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you at the next one.